is Bisti Maris, and this is The Legal Brief. Today, I want to bring you through the Ethan Crumbly case. Now, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy. Ethan Crumbly is a 15-year-old Michigan high school student who is a suspect in a shooting rampage at Oxford High School in Michigan. Four students are dead. Seven people are injured. And Ethan Crumbly has now been charged with two dozen, 24 charges. Uh, And I want to bring you through them and explain them. There's also been a couple of other twists in this case. His parents are also being charged in connection with this school shooting. So I'm going to break down all of this because there's more and more unfolding to this case every day. And one of the uh, main issues in this case is everything we're learning from Ethan Crumbly's electronic footprint. Investigators are putting together the pieces on what led to this terrible, terrible tragedy by tracking social media, text messages, and uh, working through this investigation. And and with each passing day, we're learning more and more. So let's go through the charges that Ethan himself faces. So if he is convicted, he could face a possible lifetime sentence. So the prosecutor in this case is charging Crumbly, Ethan, I'm just, I'm going to call him by first name because we're going to have to talk about his parents. So I don't want it to get confusing. Uh, Charging Ethan as an adult. So keep in mind, he is 15 years old. So this is something to keep in mind as we work through all of the charges in these cases, because he is a minor, he's being charged as an adult, and the process and the way those charges play out and ultimately the penalty can be impacted by the fact that he is a minor. So let's go through it. What are the charges that he faces? So he faces one count of terrorism causing death. And we're going to break that down because Michigan has a very broad terrorism statute that's a bit different than other statutes that we've seen in other states, which are a bit more narrow. He's also facing four counts of first degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. Also, this investigation that we were just talking about, investigators have publicly disclosed that they don't believe his actions were an impulsive thing. He, they believe that this was premeditated, this was pre-planned for a significant period of time prior to the shooting. And that all leads into why the prosecutors are charging Ethan as an adult. Now, obviously, this is a terribly horrific and heinous crime. And we know he's the shooter. We know he's the shooter. Whether he has a defense, some sort of defense that would, uh, like insanity, we haven't heard anything like that yet, but unless he pleads insanity, unless there's some defense that's going to serve as an affirmative defense, With respect to his actions, I mean, there's no question that he's the shooter. This isn't that type of case. So what his defense is going to be, it's unclear. At this time, he has pled not guilty to all charges. So could we see an insanity defense? Entirely possible. All of this happened last week. So I'm certain that his lawyers are working with him now to 
figure out what the appropriate next steps with respect to their defense is going to be. So that's what's happening right now. So obviously we've got four counts of first degree murder. This is premeditated murder. Uh, and it, it, it's one of, it's the most serious crime in Michigan. A first degree murder conviction in Miss, Michigan results in an automatic life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. But keep in mind, this is why there's a twist when you're dealing with a minor. There's a somewhat recent, a 2012 Supreme Court case, which declared mandatory life without parole for juvenile homicide offenders on constitutional. So that means even if Ethan is convicted of all of those first degree murder charges, which would normally result in a mandatory life without parole, he could still have the possibility of parole. Now, just to be very clear, the judges ultimately make a decision in Michigan on sentencing. So how does a trial play out? A trial plays out by going through what's called the guilt phase of the trial. The guilt phase is where you hear all of the evidence and all of the witness testimony and all of the documentary evidence. And a jury concludes whether or not somebody is guilty or not guilty. That's the guilt phase. Once the guilt phase is complete, it's different in every state. Some states, the jury decides the penalty. Many states, a judge decides the penalty. In Michigan, a judge decides the penalty. So after hearing all of the evidence in the case, a guilty verdict is rendered. Now it goes to the penalty phase of the trial. A judge is now going to make a determination about sentencing. Uh, and they don't do that alone. The prosecutors make a recommendation. The defense makes a recommendation. And an independent a part of the government, usually the parole board, usually uh, they make a determination and a sentencing recommendation to the judge. So all of that happens, and then a judge makes a decision. There's also a proceeding for the penalty phase. A defendant presents mitigating factors. A The prosecution pre presents what's called aggravating factors, and then there's sentencing guidelines. So it's not like it's a free-for-all. The judge does have parameters, but ultimately the judge makes that decision. So with this, these charges in Michigan, a judge could still decide to send a juvenile convict to prison for life without the possibility as parole. It's not automatic. And the judge will have to have a sentencing memo that will justify why that decision was rendered. And that all came out of this 2012 Supreme Court case. The terrorism charge, and we all know, we all have a colloquial definition of terrorism that we associate that word with, but the law in Michigan is a little bit different. So what does the terrorism charge mean? Well, the statute in Michigan is a 2002 anti-terrorism law, which defines a terrorist act as one intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to affect the conduct of a government through intimidation or coercion. So it's when you first listen to that, you say, okay, well, how does a school shooting fit into that? And right now, is there evidence about this being anti-government or trying to influence specific people? No. So how does it fit into this statute? So Michigan, unlike the law in some states and, and very much unlike the federal law, has their own anti-terrorism law, which has a much broader definition beyond that relation against only the government with violence. So 
here, it's it's not about that. It's about, and the prosecutor articulated this, it's about the these students. They were terrorized on that day. We're talking about a definition that's a little bit different. So the law has been more typically used to charge people with making terrorist threats, something like calling in a bomb threat. Uh, but in 2005, a Michigan teen accused of plotting a massacre at his high school was convicted of threatening an act of terrorism. So there is precedent to use this anti-terrorism law in relation to school guidance. So this this is something that's going to be interesting to see the way this played out. Uh, Michigan law was also used. So this particular law was used in charges against several men with providing material support for terrorist acts to plot and kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer and attack the state capitol. So these charges have been used a bit differently than your typical uh, terrorist charges. So let's take that and, and put it in contrast to Florida, where the 2018 high school massacre in Parkland, the shooter was not charged with terrorism. And that's because in Florida... The Parkland shooter did not fall under their legal definition of terrorism. So here, the charges that Ethan Crumbly faces have a very different definition. Uh, and again, this is all leading into the ultimate decision of the prosecutors to charge Ethan Crumbly as an adult. adult. So all of that being said, no surprise that he's being charged as an, as an adult, especially if there is evidence about premeditation in this case, because this is the most serious charge you can face in Michigan. Uh, and there isn't a there isn't an issue about whether or not he's the one that actually did this. The question is, is he going to have some defense uh, to this case. And the only one I can think of that would be applicable is some form of an insanity defense. So only time will tell. We have not heard about that yet. So let's move on to the parents of Ethan Crumbly, because this has been uh, just capturing the headlines because there's <laughs> this, this is a very unusual move by prosecutors, although not unprecedented. So the Crumblies appeared uh, and, and they are charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. They pleaded not guilty to all four counts. Uh, in another twist in this case, prosecutors had announced that they intended to charge these parents prior to the police actually arresting them. So there has been an allegation that the Crumbleys were on the run. James and Jennifer Crumbly were evading arrest. So that is all going to play into this. And that all uh, led to a $500,000 each bond set for the Crumbleys. So the, so there's significant, there's a significant bond there. Uh, and that part of that is because there's allegations that they were fleeing from the law. Their attorneys say that they were not. Let's go through some of the facts here. Uh, and if they were to be convicted, they could face a potential prison sentence of up to 15 years. So let's talk about this potential evasion. So the Oakland prosecutor, Oakland County prosecutor, said the couple withdrew $4,000 from an ATM on Friday after involuntary manslaughter charges against them were announced and they, that they did not appear for an arraignment on that day. 
Now, local police in Detroit, which is not where they live, found the couple in a locked room in a commercial building early Saturday morning after finding a tip that said their vehicle was parked nearby. So the defense attorney came right out after the fact and said she was not aware of any arraignment and that her clients planned on turning themselves in. So there's a whole other element of that. And that's going to play into the Crumbly's defense at some point uh, and, and also play into the prosecution. So the couple's son, we just talked about Ethan Crumbly. He's a high school sophomore. He's accused of killing four classmates. The couple was charged on Friday. Uh, and the allegation is that the gun their son used in the shooting at Oxford High School was their gun. The father bought the gun with the teen present at the purchase. And this happened days before the shooting. And one of the allegations is that Ethan Crumbly had full access to this gun. So this is uh, this is where the source of the charges against the parents stems, although there's a little bit more to it than just the fact that Ethan Crumbly had access to the gun. That That alone is not going to be enough to bring these serious charges for involuntary manslaughter against the parents. So there's a few more facts here that are relevant. So this has all been pieced together by investigators. In the day leading up to the shooting, here's some of the evidence that the investigators put together, and this is all part of the indictment. The parents had purchased the gun for Ethan as an early Christmas gift, and this happened on Black Friday. The gun allegedly was stored in an unlocked drawer in the parents' bedroom. The the at the arraignment, the prosecutor said that Ethan had total access to the gun Uh, after the father purchased the gun. According to the prosecutors, Ethan posted an image on social media of the gun, along with a caption that said, just got my new beauty today and then an emoji with heart eyes. Uh, And and so that posting came soon after a day before the attack, school officials called Ethan's mother to report that he had been searching for ammunition on his cell phone while in class. A teacher found him in class with a drawing of a bullet with a phrase above it that read blood everywhere. Another drawing showed a person who had been shot twice and was bleeding. Below that were two messages that said, my life is useless and the world and the world is dead. So at that point, he was sent to his guidance counselor's office where he said the drawing was part of a video game he was designing. Uh, And the school officials then called his parents. And so here the parents came in and the parents asked that they stay in school. They refused to have Ethan taken out of school that day. um, And they left him there. The kid had no prior disciplinary infractions. Um, And so in this interview with the parents, and this is a really important piece, counselors concluded that he did not intend on committing either self-harm or harm to others. The student's parents never advised the school district that he had direct access to a firearm or that they had recently purchased a firearm. So there's another piece of this, and that's what liability the school could possibly have. Um, So... The superintendent says that he asked for a third party review of all of those events at the school in the past week. 
So hours after the meeting with his parents, school officials shortly before 1 p.m. said the teen emerged from a bathroom with the gun and opened fire, aiming to kill students. And that's all part of the police report. This prompted teachers and students to barricade themselves in the classroom. About half an hour after the shooting, the boy's mother texted him. So this is this is the mother. This is the mother that's charged. Ethan, don't do it. And when the father heard about the shooting, he went to his gun cabinet and looked to see if a gun was missing. His father called police at 1.37 p.m. that day, said the gun was missing, and said that he thought his son was responsible for the shooting. So this is a very, very significant piece of this case. What happens and the parents' response to the aftermath of the shooting. They hear of the shooting and the messages that are sent and the call that is made isn't, is Ethan, are you okay? It's Ethan, don't do it. So there's this assumption that he has some responsibility. So there's a couple of laws that are really going to matter in here. So the standard to hold a parent responsible for the acts of their children on an involuntary manslaughter charge, it's not unprecedented. It's not never happened before, but it is unusual. And it's a very, very high standard. It's higher than a negligence standard. So what's a negligence standard? A negligence standard means that somebody acts unreasonable. A reasonable person would have been different. This is a much higher standard of gross negligence. It's going to require that prosecutors, in order to hold them responsible on an involuntary manslaughter, it's going to require that prosecutors are able to prove that the Crumbleys knew something more, that they had enough knowledge that Ethan was going to have this violent act than just conjecture or something like that, or just these isolated incidents, uh, isolated incidents prior. This is all going to be about these days leading up to this, what the parents knew and what they did in response to that. So let's go through some of the twists in the law. Unlike some other states, Michigan does not have a law requiring the safe storage of guns and children are allowed to go to shooting ranges as long as they're accompanied by their parents. Uh, In 2018, though, a Michigan appeals court upheld a manslaughter conviction against a father whose 10-year-old daughter fatally shot his nine-year-old son with a gun that had been kept unloaded in an unlocked closet. So there is some precedent here. Now, Michigan has another law, which is directly applicable. Michigan provides criminal liability for a parent of any child under 18 whose child violates a state firearm-related law while on school property or in a school vehicle if the parent has custody of the child and, and here's the two most important pieces, knew the child would commit the violation or acted to further the violation. So again, extraordinarily high standard. They have to either know that Ethan was going to do something like this, or they have to have acted in furtherance of that. So all of this is going to be directly contingent on what the parents knew, what the parents knew in those days leading up. Now it's coming out that there's some very disturbing journals. Did they know that this was something that Ethan was capable of? They bought him a gun shortly before this happened. What was their role? And that's all going to be hashed out in these next steps of the investigation. Now let's talk about the fact that the charges were announced. Prosecutor announces the charges, and this is very unusual as well, because the prosecutor announced the charges before the two were were arrested, before there was a warrant for their arrest. So that's uh, 
a kind of a logistical no-no from a law enforcement perspective because it obviously you announce somebody that they're going to be arrested. It gives them the opportunity to flee. Prosecutors allege that they did flee, that they were hiding out. They say they withdrew this cash money uh, from an ATM and then went to a place where they don't usually live. And they're ultimately found in a locked room and they're only found because there's a tip about their vehicle. So prosecutors are going to try and say that in addition to all of this information that has come to light about Ethan and the planning of this crime, and and all of that's going to come out, the next step is, well, the parents had a guilty state of mind after the fact. They wouldn't have run if they didn't have any role or or did not know or were just as shocked as everybody else about what happened then why why run so that's all going to be a part of this case so again in order to hold them criminally responsible criminally responsible we're not talking about civil case we're talking about a criminal case in order to hold them criminally responsible it's going to be a high bar just the fact that ethan had access to the gun is not going to be enough it's going to have to be that plus more so all of that is going to come into uh, play with the prosecution, especially that response to charges, right? So that they run. And what does that mean? Well, that could mean a consciousness of guilt. Now, again, the defense attorneys are contesting that. So only time will tell how that particular issue plays out. But I would anticipate seeing that as part of the case. In my mind, uh, and a lot of it's going to depend on what they knew prior to this terrible, terrible attack in the school uh, is, did they have access to these journals? Did they know of Ethan's propensity for violence? What, if any, counseling has he had? What, if any, issues were flagged at the home? Has he expressed that he wanted to commit these violent acts? All of that's going to be relevant. In my mind, the most damaging piece of evidence that's come to public light so far, and we don't know what else is out there, but this is all about the electronic footprint, electronics, the, the fact that we have such access to social media, text messages, all of that. It's changed the game with respect to investigations. So the single most damaging piece of evidence for the parents is the response to the shooting. That response to the shooting, Ethan, don't do it. The mother hears that there has been a shooting at the school and she says, Ethan, don't do it. I think we can all agree that that's an unusual response. The father immediately goes to his gun cabinet to see if a gun is missing. So all of that's going to come into play. They do not disclose to the school in this meeting regarding Ethan's potentially disturbing behavior. They do not disclose to the school that he has access to a gun or that, that he, that he in fact, they just purchased him a gun over Black Friday. You know, this is... This, this is less than a week. So all of that's going to be taken into consideration as these next steps unfold. So with respect to Ethan, keep your eye out because we might not know what his defense is until this case moves forward, right? We're at the very, very beginning of this case. This might be the type of case that if he is not able to uh, work with prosecutors to maybe agree to life life with some parole as opposed to going to trial and being convicted. I don't know if that would be even on the table, but perhaps that would be a plea deal that a defense attorney would try and seek that it's life with the possibility of parole. We talked about that hitch in the law with the Supreme court case that says that 
minors cannot be sentenced to life without parole as a matter of course when convicted of first degree murder. So perhaps defense attorneys will be trying to see if there could be some plea deal arrangement which would allow for parole. Uh, The other piece of this is that this case could go all the way to trial and defense attorneys could work up to that moment to levy some sort of defense. And again, the only defense that I could see would be an insanity plea. We don't really know other than this disturbing information that we found out about his actions prior to the shooting. We don't know what his mental state was. I will say that the fact he was able to sit in a meeting the same day of the shooting, this is going to be the key because Insanity defense requires you, and it's at the time the crime was committed. Let's all be clear. Insanity is at the time the crime is committed. It's your state of mind at that time. Are you so detached from reality that you don't understand the consequences of your actions? Here's evidence that that's not going to fly in his case. Number one, the allegations as of this moment are that this is premeditated. If you're planning something in advance... It's difficult to say that you're so detached from reality that you don't know what you're doing and that you don't know it's wrong. So that's number one, unlikely to succeed. Number two is in this meeting with the school counselors, which happened same day, same week, same day, these multiple interactions with the school, he tells them that he's developing and planning to make a video game to explain away his behavior. Well, If you know that you did something, that that if you don't know that what you're doing is wrong, you don't have the capacity to have a, a, you know, a story, a, a story in your back pocket about why you did certain things. So I don't see an insanity plea or insanity defense really flying, given the facts we have right now. But who knows? There could be more. We have to wait until more information comes into the public sphere in order to really assess it and to really know where this is going. So the next piece of this is what about the school? Could the school face potential liability? So uh, the schools can be held responsible under these circumstances sometimes. And that's again, it depends on their knowledge and their response Uh, to what happened. And usually you'll see a school being held liable from a civil perspective. So what is the training like? What are their, what is their reporting protocol? What are they required to do? You know, many schools are required to have, or many states require schools to have active shooter training. Uh, Many schools require states to have very strict and specific reporting protocols linked up to law enforcement relating to disturbing behavior. So it's going to be a deep dive into what the school's policies are, what the state law requires, and what information the school had prior to this happening. A lot of this happened in close proximity to the actual shooting. Uh, So it's going to be a, there's going to be, be an investigation required into all of those elements in order to make a determination about whether or not there's potential civil liability against the school. The argument from the school's perspective is that you have what's called an unforeseeable criminal act, meaning that you have a person doing something criminal that the school just could not have possibly known about or a reasonable person would not have known that uh, that 
any sort of violent act was imminent. So those are all going to be the factors to keep in mind as this case continues to unfold. Again, we're learning a lot from uh, the electronic footprint. The investigation is continuing to unfold. That link between what the parents knew and what Ethan was actually planning, that's all going to be really critical. More and more evidence is going to come out as this case continues to uh, as continues to unfold. And we might not know all of the details until we get to a trial down the road, until the attorneys are all working to uh, levy a defense for each of the, the people involved here. But what I will say is this is such a terrible, terrible tragedy. Uh, and there's just no accounting for the pain and suffering that the families and the parents of the deceased and of the victims in this case are going through. We will continue to analyze all of the legal aspects of this case as this continues to unfold. But uh, as I said, I don't think from a sheerly legal perspective, I don't see a strong defense, legal defense for Ethan Crumbly in this case, based on what we know right now. Okay, so covering that story, we're going to continue to cover breaking news and developments relating to that case. But this upcoming week, there are many, many legal stories out there that I want to dive into. Uh, I want to talk about Ghislaine Maxwell, what's, what's going on in her trial, what have we learned from the testimony so far, Jesse uh, Smollett case, that trial is ongoing as well, and then Alec Baldwin recently sits down with George Stephanopoulos. What does that mean for the lawsuits that we're seeing coming out of the shooting on the set of Rust? All of that to be covered this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll continue to provide news and developments on all of these cases and to break down all of the legal issues. Thanks again for listening.